American Prestige. This is a big week in foreign affairs, so we'll get into it very quickly. But as always, I'm Danny Pessner here with Derek Davison, my friend and comrade. Um, so Derek, why don't we get into it? What's been going on with friend of the pod Nick Kristoff's campaign for governor of Oregon? Yeah, as people know, this is the number one source for Nick Kristoff governor campaign news. <laughs> number one slash only. You take your pick. <laughs> So, sadly, uh, I must report that the Oregon Supreme Court, in a unanimous ruling on Thursday, decided that Nick Kristoff, former New York Times columnist, cannot run for governor of Oregon in November because he does not meet the state's residency requirements. Uh, I believe, according to his own lawyer's brief, this means he's being just as discriminated against as as African-Americans were under Jim Crow or something like that. I forget what the actual brief said, but he definitely mentioned residency requirements as a remnant of uh, the Jim Crow era and compared himself to to uh, people who were unjustly affected by them. So, yeah, the, the dream is over, I guess, uh, for the people of Oregon. The dream is not over, Derek. The dream survives, <laughs> even if this particular instantiation of it is coming to an ignominious end. The dream survives, particularly on American prestige. <laughs> Well, we'll do we'll do what we can to kind of, you know, keep the fires burning. But I think this is pretty much legally the the end of the road for him. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Maybe he can take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Who knows? Oh, yeah, this should go to the I think this should actually skip the line in cases that they're yeah, supposed to be, hear. Right, this is a right, very should important be, should issue. be a bench, you know, immediate, immediate, <laughs> uh, immediately up to the U.S. Supreme Court, get an injunction. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's. Uh, sad note. Another sad note, actually, on a somewhat related, the uh, uh, big friend of the pod, uh, the president of Turkmenistan, Gurbanguly Berdi Mihamadou. It, it looks like he's going to be retiring. Turkmenistan is holding a snap election next month where, you know, because Turkmen elections are not exactly free and fair, uh, his son will most likely be elected to succeed him, Serdar. Berdy Muhammadov. But Serdar, from what I understand, is not nearly as interesting as his father. If people, you know, real heads will know this, but uh, Gurbanguly was known for things like recording rap videos with his grandson and uh, recording videos of him training Turkmen special forces and how to uh, stab somebody with a knife or shoot somebody, you know, snipe somebody from long range. A uh, very colorful guy, uh, obviously very brutal authoritarian leader at the same time, so I don't want to make too much light of him, but sad to see him go in a sense. The, the world will be a little less brighter for his retirement. Well, thank you, Derek, for those updates. And let's go to, I mean, <laughs> not as serious news, but, you know, stuff that people should know. And, and let's start actually with the French withdrawal from Mali. So what's been going on, man? Yeah, so Mali is under currently under a military junta. It had been under a military junta since 2020. But uh, last year, the junta, had, which had set up a, a sort of interim civilian government, overthrew that government in another coup, kind of a coup within a coup, and has taken power completely sort of on its own at this point. Ever since then, that was, you know, middle of last year, ever since then, its relationship with France has been deteriorating. They've been sniping back and forth over a variety of things. And that's expanded to include not only the French forces that are stationed in Mali as part of France's kind of Sahelian 
counterterrorism force, but it's come to include other European forces that are also in Mali. There's a European Union kind of adjunct to that French mission called Operation Tacuba or Task Force Tacuba. And basically the Hunt's relationship with pretty much every government in Europe at this point is, is deteriorating. And so the French government, it's been, you know, expected for some time now, but the French government on Thursday announced that it would be withdrawing forces from Mali. We cannot stay engaged militarily next to authorities who do not share our strategy nor our objectives. That's the situation we are confronted by in Mali today. Most likely it will reposition uh, the forces it has in the Sahel to uh, someplace else. I'm not sure where. France has bases in Niger and in Chad. Chad is a little bit far afield, but they might move these forces to Niger. On the other hand, I'm curious to, I'll be curious to see this. I think they may uh, try to set up a, a new base in Burkina Faso, which is where a lot of the Malian jihadist problem has sort of metastasized. France has been in Mali since 2013. They intervened to counter an uprising among the Tuareg in northern Mali that was heavily driven by the Islamists, Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic Maghreb, which is no longer really all that active, but was based in Algeria, sort of funneled leaders and fighters in to participate in this conflict. And the French intervened. They stifled the Tuareg uprising, but then have done really very little since to sort of stem the jihadist activity in Mali. So I don't know this is going to lead to much of an impact on the ground. It may open up some space for the Malian government to actually engage diplomatically or negotiate with some of these groups, some of these extremist groups, which France has always been steadfastly opposed to, but, but has shown some success in sort of settling grievances at local levels and kind of parochial levels. So there could be a bright side to this or an upside to this for the Malians, although certainly there's going to be a lot of hair tearing about, you know, what's going to happen to Mali now that France isn't there to protect it. One of the things I always say is if you're an ex-French colony in Africa or anywhere else, you're sort of like in the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never really leave. Uh, France <laughs> yeah, maintains, does seem, yeah. maintains tight ties over its former colonies. So this is an interesting rupture. Part of it has to do with the tensions between most of Europe, the European Union, and Russia, because there's some involvement of Russian mercenaries in Mali now, which the French government has opposed. But, you know, in general, it's it, it's an interesting development for counterterrorism, and, and we'll have to see how it shakes out. A couple of things. First, uh, I just want to highlight Derek's um, up-to-date reference to Hotel California. Um, I think someone should start keeping a list of Derek's pop cultural references. Hotel California is <laughs> a classic. Come on. Uh, it was, it's actually, I think it might have over a billion spins on Spotify, but I just oh, like, really? that, that, yeah, yeah. like the, cla- the, the classic references. And second, we've been talking a lot about West Africa in the last few weeks. And, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about the region. I know in the past that you've said that you don't really think you could draw regional conclusions from a lot of what's been going on, but do you still hold to that? Or, or, or are these just a lot of events happening in the same region, or is there something broader that we could possibly um, understand about? What's well, going I don't on? think. I mean, I don't think you can draw broad conclusions. I think it's a mistake to try to draw deep, broad conclusions about the coups that have been happening in West Africa. There's a spate of them. There was one attempted coup in Guinea-Bissau just a, a couple of weeks ago. I think it's a mistake to try and kind of lump those all together because they all have their own unique causes. But we're, if we're talking about the Islamist conflict in in West Africa. I mean, that's very much a transnational thing, and you can say some big things about it. I mean, the the problem 
uh, sort of spread south into Mali from Algeria, as I said, in 2013. The French intervention stifled it for a little while, but it reemerged in central Mali, which is a, another kind of ethnic hotspot. It's metastasized from there into western Niger, into Burkina Faso. There have been a couple of attacks recently in Benin. So it's become a region-wide problem. And there, you know, there certainly are some things, some conclusions that you can draw. I think one of them is that European intervention, French intervention, has not really helped very much because they've been intervening now for almost 10 years and the effects on the ground kind of speak for themselves. And the other, as I alluded to, and this is something I'd like to get into, we may have Alex Thurston, one of my go-tos for West Africa, and, and you know, maybe him and, and somebody else on the program here eventually to talk about this. But one of the things that I think is really missing here is the treatment of West African jihadist movements as parochial, as locally focused, you know, based in, in local kind of ethnic grievances or grievances about governance, grievances about corruption. I think there's a tendency, and this is driven a lot by France, by European commentary by Western media. There's a tendency to treat these movements, and they, they all have names, you know, Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, or, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda's affiliate in Mali, or whatever, that kind of connect them to this transnational idea of transnational jihadism. But I, I think if you drill down to what really causes these movements to emerge and drives them and drives their recruitment, it's, it's very much more of a local phenomenon, and one that could benefit you know, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis, but one that could benefit from engagement with some of these groups and, and the people, their leaders or their kind of middle managers, so to speak, in different areas to, to discuss those grievances and maybe try to address them. And that's, again, something that is hindered by the presence of a lot of European soldiers who exert, and a lot of you know, European officials who exert a sort of control over how these counterterrorism operations are managed. And their thing is always war, war, war. You gotta pound them, you gotta air, do airstrikes, you have to kill them, and, and you'll eventually get to the end of the, the problem. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Again, the, what the situation <laughs> on the ground speaks for itself. Yeah. So as always, depressing, depressing updates here on American Prestige. And why don't we turn back to our own friend of the pod, President Joseph R. Biden, and particularly his recent dealings with Saudi Arabia for oil. So uh, what's been going on, Derek? Yes. Yeah, so Biden sent this week a couple of officials to Saudi Arabia, Brett McGurk, who's the, the sort of Middle East guru on the National Security Council. And the State Department's energy point man, Amos Hochstein, I, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, and I'm, I apologize for that, but sent them both to Saudi Arabia to sort of beg the Saudis to start pumping more oil. Biden himself called, I guess, or had a phone conversation with King Salman of Saudi Arabia last week to, again, sort of beg, <laughs> beg the Saudis to pump more oil. Oil prices are up in the 90s. Right now, they're, they're approaching $100 a barrel. That leads, obviously, to high prices at the pump, which leads to a lot of Democrats white-knuckling it as they get ready for the midterm elections. They're going to get November. so, so uh, demolished. I mean, it's going to be like a world a historical yeah. demolishment. You I mean, they're going to get rinsed for a variety of reasons, but... but you know, the gas prices are sort of a, a regular kind of feature of this kind of stuff. So there, there was a piece by Ken Klippenstein in The Intercept this week that suggested, based on some interviews with, you know, sort of uh, analysts, that the Saudis may know this and may be intentionally kind of refusing to increase oil prices because 
they've concluded that this will help Republicans get elected. And Mohammed bin Salman is, is you know, a big-time Republican booster now, I guess, because of his relationship with the Trump family. Uh, I think that may be part of it. I don't know how, how big a deal that is. I think the Saudis are, are concerned uh, about another crash in the market like we saw if there's another surge, if there's like, you know, some new strain of COVID that's a million times worse than anything we've seen yet. There, there could be a another huge crash in demand. They, they don't want to get caught with a with a glut of oil in the market. They are operating to some degree in a framework, the OPEC plus framework, which is OPEC, the, the traditional oil cartel, plus some other major oil producers, chiefly Russia, but there are a few others. And they've, I mean, they're, they're operating under an agreement on slowly ratcheting production back up to pre-COVID levels uh, that the Saudis can't necessarily just buck because they feel like it, although Saudi Arabia has, you know, maybe aside from Russia, has more influence over what OPEC plus does than anybody else. So, I mean, there are some other factors here. Another one is, you know, the higher these prices get, the closer you get, I think, to triggering a, a resumption of shale drilling in the United States, which was also a factor in really bringing oil prices down over the last decade. So, you know, the Saudis may be waiting to see what happens with that. Uh, ultimately, you know, this is about the United States still being enthralled to to the Middle East for energy uh, because we've never really pivoted away from, from burning oil, even though the U.S. is not not necessarily as dependent on Saudi Arabia as it once was. The global oil market is certainly dependent on Saudi Arabia, and so we're left to sort of plead with them to to do something to bring gas prices down. So just a question that I always wonder when the U.S. deals with Saudi Arabia about oil is, Saudi is so reliant on the U.S., why can't Biden just effectively tell them what to do? Is he afraid to withdraw support? Is he afraid to anger them? Like, what is the power relationship here? Because from the outside, the U.S. is just way more powerful. So why can't he just dictate terms effectively? Yeah, I think the the, the power relationship now, and I, I don't know, you know, this wasn't always the case, but it's certainly the case now is the idea that the Saudis could just go elsewhere for their great power patron, uh, and specifically to China. This would be an, an enormous expense for the Saudis because they would basically have to redo their entire military from scratch uh, based on Chinese hardware. Um, but if things got really bad, if the relationship got really bad, um, you know, that might be an expense that they were willing to undertake. I don't know. I'm, but I agree with you. The, 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 power, the power imbalance that you would assume exists based on these kinds of stories and this interchange, I think, is, is not reflected re in reality. Uh, it's more reflected in the perceptions of, of folks in D.C. who, you know, may have other reasons for wanting the Saudis to increase oil production. But uh, I, I do tend to agree with you that the, the relationship is, is not nearly as weighted in the Saudis' favor as you might think. So let's turn to the Iran deal, because that is actually not disconnected from what's going on with oil. So what are the developments on that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if, if Iran comes out from under the sanctions uh, that have been imposed on it over the last three, four years, that would bring a new supply of oil onto the market and would have some effect in bringing oil prices down. So I, I've been trying to stay away from this because it sounds like the negotiations are in their last stages and, and the last stages of negotiations like this are when everybody like mouths off to the press at every turn, like leaks everything that they can to try and influence the course of negotiations and you get a lot of noise. But Reuters reported just today that they've seen a, a draft of the agreement that and this is kind of key, it sequences things so that 
Iran would be obliged to come back into compliance with the terms of the 2015 nuclear deal, and then it would see relief from sanctions. Now, in the in the immediate term, what Iran would get is access to a lot of frozen funds in, for example, South Korea. So it would get an immediate benefit, but it wouldn't get the full benefit of sanctions relief until after it's taken steps to come back into compliance. So that's interesting. It's been the timing of this and the sort of order in which everybody would have to move has been one of the key sticking points in the discussion. So maybe they've moved past that, which is a good sign that they're approaching a deal. According to the article, the Iranians are still looking for some kind of a guarantee from the United States that it would not leave the deal, abandon the deal again, as Donald Trump did in 2018, which is not really something that the Biden administration can give. Realistically, it's just not, you know, people talk about you could uh, treat this as a treaty, but you'd never get it past the Senate for one thing. And even if you did, there would still be an out clause in there that a future administration could exert. So, you know, there's really nothing that the Biden administration can do to guarantee that the U.S. will continue to participate in it. It sounds like they're approaching a compromise that would, I think, say, Basically, that everything Iran has done since 2018 to kind of reduce its compliance with the deal, you know, enriching uranium past the its, you know, stated stockpile limits, enriching it to much higher levels. They've gone as high as 60%. Maybe you would have a document that says, look, if the United States leaves again, Iran is entitled to do all of these things again, you know, sort of do everything it's done over the past four years. That could be a compromise. I don't, I don't know. That's the sense I get anyway from reading the article. It doesn't sound like anything's agreed to yet. So nobody's, you know, put pen to paper, but there may be a, a maybe in the final days of, of these negotiations. So one of the big stories in the last week, or maybe even longer at this point, is uh, what the U.S. has been doing with the Afghanistan Central Bank. So Derek, maybe you could just actually lay out, because it's semi-complicated, what has Biden done? What has this executive order that he issued actually done? And, and why is it important? And why should people care about this? Afghanistan Central Bank, which was set up by the United States in the wake of the uh, 2001 invasion and the war that overthrew the former Taliban government, has a little over somewhere in the range of like nine to ten billion dollars in overseas banks. Somewhere around seven billion, a little bit over, it sounds like seven billion is invested in the United States. So what the Biden administration did via executive order late last week on Friday was it's been freezing all of these funds basically through through sanctions actions, but preventing the Afghan Central Bank from accessing any of them. What it did on Friday was it went from from freezing them to seizing these seven billion some odd uh, dollars that that are invested in the U.S. Basically announcing that it would take a little less than half of that, about $3.5 billion, and devote it to financing humanitarian aid efforts in Afghanistan and take the rest and dedicate it to paying reparations for the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. This has been, the administration is trying to say that what it's done here is to help the Afghan people by freeing up this $3.5 billion because really all that money was potentially locked down by legal proceedings. But what a lot of commentators have said, uh, and I think rightly so, is that A, this isn't America's money to spend or to do with what it wants. B, what you've really done is you've decapitalized the Afghan Central Bank, which has huge implications. Even if you do wind up spending 
spending $3.5 billion of this money on humanitarian efforts, which is questionable whether that'll actually happen. But even if you do wind up doing this, the, the effect of basically looting the Afghan Central Bank, uh, which is supposed to be there to stabilize the Afghan economy, could be profound. It could be far worse than whatever benefit you would get from you know that equivalent amount of humanitarian relief. And then obviously the other part of this is the over $3.5 billion that's been set aside for reparations for a terrorist attack that was not carried out by the Afghan people, wasn't even really carried out by the Taliban, it was carried out by al-Qaeda. You can make an argument, I guess, a legal argument that the Taliban has some liability because they were hosting al-Qaeda when this happened. But even if you make that argument, the money that was in the Afghan Central Bank was not the Taliban's money. This is money that belongs to the Afghan Central Bank, which in theory is supposed to belong to the, the Afghan people. And so you've basically stolen their money to pay for a, a crime that they didn't commit. And, and you've punished them now. I would argue, and I think you know, many people have argued that the, the Afghan people spent 20 years paying for the September 11, 2001 attacks, and now you're you're looting their bank to to force them to pay again for the same thing uh, when they had nothing to do with it. Most of us sleep with empty stomachs because we don't have jobs to find money and feed our families. Like before in Shah and now, someone was distributing bread to the poor. And there were hundreds of poor and starving people fighting over one piece of bread. And I was thinking, it's better to die than being disrespected this much. So why do you think the United States is doing something that at least appears wantonly cruel? Do you think they just don't care? Do you, do you think the administration just flat out doesn't care about this? I mean, obviously, this is sort of getting at the hearts and minds of, of uh, decision makers. But what's your take on this? My sense is that I, I think, and you know, this is sort of taking them at their word, which I know is a dicey proposition, but I think they really believe that they've like uh, split the baby here, like the wise King Solomon, that they, they were getting pressure to increase humanitarian relief efforts in, in Afghanistan, which is facing a, you know, humanitarian catastrophe in the wake of the Taliban takeover and the fact that relief agencies, their operations in Afghanistan were kind of ripped to the ground and then all of the central bank's assets were frozen and it was shut down. They've been getting a lot of pressure to, to do more to help relief efforts for the Afghan people. But at the same time, they feel like they can't touch all of this money because they'll get political heat for stealing from the families of the 9-11 victims who have been suing in court to claim, you know, this money as, as reparations. And so they feel like they've, you know, come up with this kind of wise solution of splitting the money in half and freeing half of it for humanitarian relief efforts. But for all sorts of reasons, even the humanitarian relief part is poorly conceived and cruel to some extent. And, and so my sense is they feel like they did a good thing here, but it was really catastrophic. And of course, there are other more conspiratorial interpretations of this, that they sort of cleared the way for this three point whatever billion uh, portion to go to the victims now. And there was a story I think might have been also in The Intercept this week, suggesting that, you know, there was an attorney who was working on Afghan policy in the White House and refugee resettlement, uh, who's now gone back to private practice in a firm that's representing uh, some portion of the 9-11 victims. Uh, so there's, there's hints of, you know, maybe something disturbing going on there. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say definitely that there's anything nefarious happening. But, but even if we take them at their word that they're trying to, they, they feel like they did a good thing here, they really did not. It's really going to have, I think, not good repercussions for Afghanistan. So why don't we conclude with um, 
a discussion about Ukraine. In the, in the last, I would say, 24 hours we're recording on Thursday, um, there's been a, a ratcheting up, at least, of U.S. rhetoric about uh, a potential Russian invasion. So, Derek, do you revise any of your claims about you still don't think uh, Russia is going to invade? What do you think has been going on? Why has there been more rhetoric, et cetera? So, I mean, the week started off with uh, the Russians on Tuesday, I guess it didn't start off, but earlier in the week, the Russians said they were withdrawing forces th- that have been deployed in, in sort of the general region around Ukraine. This was, you know, seen as, a, I think, a sign of, of a positive development, maybe an, an opening for diplomacy. Certainly, that's how I interpreted it. But here we are, I guess, on Thursday. Uh, and the United States, you know, Joe Biden just warned today that the the threat of war is imminent and the United States has not toned down its rhetoric. If anything, it's ratcheted up. I think if you do what they do at the Olympics to tie into something else that's going on in the ice skating competition where they throw out the high and low scores, if you throw out the extremes here uh, on the one extreme being the people who say the Russia is going to invade tomorrow morning at 7.30 a.m. I have information on this. If you, if you ignore them and if you ignore the people who say, you know, it's over, everything's fine now, we can, you know, we don't have to, there's no concern about anything happening. We're left basically right now where we've been for the last couple of months, which is there's a lot of Russian soldiers stationed around Ukraine, a lot of assets, a lot of material. We don't have perfect information on their disposition at this time. There doesn't seem to be any signal that they're conducting a, a mass withdrawal, but it's only been a couple of days. And the Russians did say, and they, they've continued to say, uh, we're going to pull these soldiers back when they're done with their exercises, which, you know, is going to be uh, early next week for some of them and maybe a couple more weeks for for others. So I think we're in a position where it's still possible that, that there could be an invasion. You know, there could be a lighter incursion, like uh, some kind of support for the separatists in the Donbass. Just today, there was a, a, an incident where a school on the front line in Donbass was shelled, probably, presumably, by the rebels. And everybody kind of jumped up and said, this is it, this is the false flag that, that we've been waiting for and the Russians are going to invade. I, you know, I think I think my hope would be that we could take like a couple of days or a week and like stop panicking, still remain vigilant, but maybe stop panicking and see what happens. And then maybe we can panic again after that if nothing's changed. I understand that some people have a professional interest in panicking about this, and that's fine, I guess. And I also, <laughs> yeah, <it's great>. get, <laughs> I, I also get where the Biden administration is coming from. Their argument is that because they've been, you know, what I would say panicky about this, and they've been releasing this intelligence and, uh, you know, kind of beating this steady drumbeat about they're going to invade tomorrow, they're going to invade Wednesday, they're going to invade this time. Uh, we have information about this and that. They claim that they're thwarting these potential Russian attacks by making them public and kind of spoiling the surprise. Tony Blinken, I want to highlight this, Tony Blinken went to the UN Security Council today, Thursday, kind of unscheduled to deliver some remarks. And one of the things he said comparing this last few weeks to the run-up to the Iraq war, as some people have compared it to, he said, I'm going to quote him here, some have called into question our information, recalling previous instances where intelligence ultimately did not bear out, but let me be clear, I am here today not to start a war, but to prevent one. And this is sort of, this is an interesting point, because I think 
what they've done is they've created a, a, a situation that is untestable. So if there is an invasion, they can say, look, we warned you, we told you, we said all this stuff, we, uh, we knew this was coming. If there's no invasion, they can say, aha, we prevented the invasion by telling right. you that one was coming all this time. So they, they kind of win out either way, and it's, it's impossible to evaluate whether any of these things have, been, have had any veracity to them. But uh, you know, kudos to them, I guess, for creating a no-lose scenario for themselves. And, and that's, it's interesting because that seems to be a rhetorical move that a lot of liberals have made recently. I'm thinking about it in terms of the fascism debate. You know, you could either say, you know, you prevented fascism, or if it happens, you could say you predicted it, you know, right. when you identify right. it, you know, it's in a, and it's it's kind of a, a catch-22 situation, but everybody wins. Um, well, Derek, uh, thank you so much as always. Everyone enjoy our interview this week with Nick Mulder on his new book, The Economic Weapon. Um, it's a really great book and a really great conversation, and we'll see you you all soon. Bye. Bye bye. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to the weekly American Prestige interview. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison, and we are excited thrilled to be joined by Nick Mulder. Nick is an uh, old friend of mine. I've known him for years at this point. Uh, he's also, uh, we're all very proud of him, assistant professor of history at Cornell University and the author of the new book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Uh, and that is released by Yale University Press. I've uh, heard of that school. It's a good press. And it is a staggering 448 pages. So everything you want to know about about uh, sanctions, uh, and we're afraid to ask, you'll learn here. So, so Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. So why don't we start with the question that we're all asking ourselves is, uh, what do you think of the pizza bagel at College Town Bagels? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten around to it yet, honestly. I mean, oh, you haven't moment, gotten It's the best food in Ithaca. Oh, my God. I was in Ithaca for a year, so I know all the eating establishments well. You'll get used to uh, uh, eating at the Statler uh, Hotel. I think I had 4,000 meals there. It's the, the nice hotel on Cornell campus. But I'm very disappointed in you, young man, for not getting the College Town Bagel. I mean, I'll uh, I'm, at the moment I'm more uh, you know into a whole wheat dairy. There's a lot of that going on here. This is the easternmost part of the dairy belt. I found out, and uh, that's uh, definitely the the local yogurt here is the best I've ever tasted anywhere in the world in my life, including Turkish, Bulgarian, Greek. I mean, it's it's just it's stunning. So, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not the same part of the day of a meal as a bagel, but pretty good stuff. That's fantastic to hear. So you heard it here first. Uh, Nick endorses College Town <laughs> Breaking bagels. news on American Breaking. Prestige. All right, let's do 45 <laughs> more minutes on uh, Ithaca uh, restaurants. I think that's what everyone wants to hear. All right, so Nick, why don't we get into the serious question, which is, first and foremost, what made you want to start uh, to write a, a book about sanctions? Why don't you give a little bit of your intellectual development, what year you entered graduate school? and Because I'm particularly interested in people around our age and the role that U.S. foreign policy has played in their formation. So what is your background uh, and why did you get interested in writing about sanctions? Sure. Um, so the origins of this whole project go back even before grad school, although at the time I wasn't really aware that this is what was kind of forming in my head as an area of interest. But after college, I should also say I'm originally from the Netherlands. So I grew up in Belgium and Brussels, and then I uh, moved back to the Netherlands and, and did my college degree there. And then after that, 
Uh, I went to the UK, uh, studied and, and lived there for a while. And I was also in between doing a bunch of internships, you know, like any young person kind of trying to find out uh, what they want to do and some of the stuff. Oh, I was an intern at the Council on Foreign Relations, which has led people to call me an op. If only, uh, <laughs> if only I was paid by the CIA, I'd live in a much nicer place. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, because I think that actually there's more projects about, you know, foreign policy, like Sam Moyne was, I think, working in the Clinton White House in the 90s, right? Which is why he got this interest in human rights. One of my internships was at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. And at that time, this was when the Obama administration was first beginning to put sanctions on Iran. And I remember just going around, you know, the internet and bunch of libraries and trying to find more stuff on the history of sanctions. I couldn't really find it. And that was the first time when I guess I was just, you know, it was more of a frustration that emerged. And I didn't really do anything with it then. It wasn't until a few years later that I started and actually uh, went into grad school and then was interested in the interwar period, was coasting around for a project. And only then did it sort of all fall together. But yeah, so that's really the, the interest. It was a kind of real world thing where I was frustrated that I couldn't find anything on it. But it took me a while to figure out that actually there was a story there. And I think the interesting thing was that I hadn't expected those two things to come together and find that so many of the origins of the sanctions we have today actually go back to this early 20th century period that I'd been working on before, and particularly the era of total war. So that's kind of the, the short story, yeah. Uh, so what made you interested in the interwar period? Because I was also interested in the interwar period. My own book goes from the 30s to the 60s. But why did you find that particular period compelling? I guess because it's at this real sweet spot, right, where you have a world that has modern technologies. It has political ideologies that we recognize today, mass democracy. Uh, it has a high degree of interconnectedness. It's globalized in a, in a sense. I think that that also corresponds to what we have today in many ways. Uh, there's migration, but there is also a very, in a sense, you know, uncertain global geopolitical landscape. It's a world that looks a bit like the one we're in today. There's economic crises. So it's kind of interestingly quite distant from us because it's before World War II. It's before our current international order, but it has a lot of the same problems, all of the same crises. And there's this very interesting and to me still to this day, like really productive, uh, both you know, uh, th things that you recognize in that period and things that make it weirdly different and kind of freaky uh, that continue to, you know, stimulate interest and, and make it fun to research. So let's start at the beginning. Where did sanctions come from? Why are they important? And, and what is really the origin? Yeah, so the first point, I think, is to get some clarity about what we actually mean by sanctions. And Sometimes people use that term very broadly. They put things like tariffs and trade and all sorts of, you know, things in, in economic policy that can inflict any kind of cost. They all group that under the category of sanctions. The sort of sanctions that I think are most important to us today are not that. They're not just tariffs. They're measures of coercion against countries that are really pretty big, have a significant effect on the economy, on the population also. And... Those really go back to the period of the First World War and particularly the development of this technique of economic blockade that you uh, saw had a very important role in World War I. It was a massively important part of the Allied strategy in the, in the First World War to try and force Germany and Austria-Hungary to their knees and, and make them surrender. And 
that's I think the first sort of thing to to, to mention that it's a policy that originates in a world where globalization is already there. You can't have sanctions in the Middle Ages to the same degree because the world is just not connected enough. There's not enough ability to project power across distances. You need something like the kind of dense, also slightly financialized and interdependent world economy that we've had for the last 130, 140 years or so. So I think that's kind of the, the moment where it begins. And then uh, in World War One the use of blockade becomes a big model for the victors, basically, for how to figure out the problem of managing the peace and preserving the peace after the war. And, you know, I mean, you know, there's a saying, right, personnel is policy. So most of the people... Yeah. <laughs> so most of the people involved in the running of the blockade in World War One end up going on into the service of the League of Nations, the first big international organization in the interwar period. And that is a kind of moving of expertise uh, of how to administer the, these schemes for you know, depriving civilians of, of resources uh, and making that a tool for international institutions, potentially. So that's kind of the, the beginning of the book and, and the story that I trace. And then I, I go all the way into the 1940s. So, Nick, I, I'm struck by you know, reading your book, and, and we've had a few people on of late who have talked about sort of the early origins of features of international policy or international affairs that we see all around us today. And I, I'm consistently struck by how much more candid people were in discussing these things decades ago when they were first coming into effect than they are now. The concept of sanctions as these sort of all-encompassing punishments, as you say, couldn't exist really before the 20th century. But the idea of a blockade goes back centuries before that, and was always considered to be an act of war. You had to declare war to, to rightly impose a blockade. We get up to the interwar period, and I, you know, as I was reading your book, the, the, the candor with which people talked about these tools as acts of war, as weapons of war, in many cases more devastating than what you would see kinetically on a battlefield. Uh, and so it was the concept of the threat of sanctions that people saw as an alternative to war, as a deterrent, the idea that you could impose these things, not that you would. And somehow we've gone from there to the idea of the sanctions themselves as the alternative to war, which is where I get, you know, we're, we're sort of, we've gone, we've piled all this obfuscation up uh, around the issue as compared to the way people talked about it back then. I, I wonder if you could uh, give everybody a sense of the kinds of conversations that went on in the interwar period and the way people talked about sanctions in a much more direct way as, as weapons and as tools of war as opposed to the way we, we talk about them now. Yeah, so that's a really striking thing. And it also really surprised me when I started to research this. And the title of the book, The Economic Weapon, is not one that I came up with. It's actually just the term that they used. So I didn't, you know, because today everyone talks about the weaponization of this, the weaponization of that. There's probably kind of a weaponization uh, virus going around. or Everyone's using that term. And it seems everything can be weaponized now. But at that time, they actually really saw the use of blockade and the kind of techniques that that had produced, like restricting financial transactions and uh, controlling energy also, so coal and, and oil sanctions. All of that was kind of grouped under this big term of the economic weapon. And they were pretty open indeed, like you said, about how severe the consequences of that would be on civilians. And it's also worth kind of putting side by side the major 
kind of weapons used against civilians in the early 20th century? Because I think today, you know, we have nuclear weapons, you have strategic air power. But before those things were around, there were really only two other contenders that in, in the early 20th century could cause that mass death on that big a scale in the hundreds of thousands of people. Chemical weapons and blockade. And chemical weapons in World War I were actually only used uh, against soldiers. They weren't used on civilians yet. And um, blockade was therefore the main cause of civilian death in wartime in, in, in the First World War. So World War II, right, there's all these other things, of massive genocide uh, going on, but also strategic air power. That's really, I think, where we get our sort of, you know, uh, doomsday vision of what modern weaponry can do. But for the first three, four decades of the 20th century, being starved in a country that was basically sort of closed off as if it were a living prison was the main experience of civilian mass casualties for, for most people. And the hope was basically that by keeping that memory alive in the League of Nations, giving the League of Nations the ability to do that to countries that would become aggressor states, that you could deter them and that you could basically have their population, you know, revolt, do something to prevent the ruling elites from, from going to war. But yeah, the language that they use is extraordinary. They call it a weapon of economic strangulation. And these are liberals, right? Liberal internationalists. So you don't need to be a Carl Schmidt or something or like a very radical, um, you know, a, a Nazi supporter or even a communist, a kind of critic of liberalism to, to do these things. The liberals themselves were exceedingly open about this. And I think the, the reason that they spelled it out with such uh, kind of chilling clarity was precisely that they hoped that this was actually going to be a peace-preserving mechanism to make the threats so severe. So uh, a couple of things. Um, one, I think that's really important to relate to the history of liberalism, um, and we'll get into that uh, in a second. Um, but uh, another thing that I was curious about is um, to what degree Maybe you could just describe for people who might not know what actually happens during World War One. What are the sanctions and what are the effects? And and I think this is also really crucial, Nick, if you want to go into this a little bit, because you know, people always talk about revolutions and they often point to the, you know, late World War One or early post war World War One period to describe these. And a lot of those things, in my opinion, at least are engendered by food riots, engendered by not having access to calories. And those are directly connected to the blockade. So maybe you could just describe what actually just what just happened. What are the facts? of what happened during World War One and how you see that relating to these immediate, well, if you're talking about the Soviet Union late World War One, but, you know, if you're talking about Weimar or Hungary um, or what have you, the various post-war German republics, uh, revolutions, how that related to this revolutionary moment, because it's something we're interested in uh, as being on the left and potential for political change. Yeah. So there's really three major things that happen in this period. And I would kind of begin in 1914, but I wouldn't say that the use of this ends at all when the guns fall silent on uh, the 11th of November 1918. That's Armistice Day. But the use of economic blockade persists against Weimar Germany, against Soviet Hungary, and against Soviet Russia uh, in, in the last case until 1921. So actually, it's almost a seven-year period of this stuff going on. Uh, but let's start with the first one, which is that in, beginning in 1914, as the war breaks out, people hope that they're going to be home for Christmas. It turns out not to be that way, right? It devolves into this terrible trench war. And as that happens, particularly in Britain and in France, which are at that time the main allied countries prosecuting the war, 
they start to look for ways that they can hit Germany and Austria-Hungary where they're weakest. And they believe that because they're basically kind of military autocracies, they can put pressure on their uh, civilian society and make sure that, you know, the, the political opposition there will, in some sense, take over and push the government to sue for peace. That's one goal. But they also are very, you know, Germany in the period up to 1914 is a massive competitor of England. There's this Anglo-German naval rivalry. Uh, there's an economic rivalry. So the British have plenty of reasons to want to do this. They also want to just destroy German trade in most areas of the world, in Latin America, in Asia, in the Middle East, and even in the US. And the United States is neutral uh, for the first three years. So that's what makes this interesting. And that blockade is kind of expanded. And as it starts to get more and more severe, Germany mobilizes on a more and more total war footing. So you get Hindenburg and Ludendorff, these German generals who mobilize everyone. They really start to conscript uh, people en masse and, and put industry onto this footing that it can mobilize all sorts of resources. And the Germans at some point get so desperate that they try and actually uh, cause a bread riot revolution in Britain itself with their U-boat campaign. And this is the only thing that Germany has because Germany itself can't really do anything against the Allies. They don't really have any levers that they can use. But what they can do is use their U-boats to try and cut off the supply lines. Uh, so that's the kind of second big element. Uh, it ends up, of course, famously backfiring because it brings the United States into World War One, And that then sets the stage for the third part, which is the continuation of wartime blockade in peace. And that's really, I think, where the history of sanctions proper starts, because that's where you have taken this wartime policy and you extend it into peacetime. And that's initially used against Germany to try and force them to sign the Versailles Treaty. So if Germany doesn't agree with the terms the Allies are proposing, they're just going to keep the thumb screws on, basically, and keep uh, this economic siege in place. And the other two uh, major states that's used against uh, our Soviet Russia and Soviet Hungary. Uh, and that's also what, there's a chapter in the book about that. It's really remarkable that you see this concerted effort without ever declaring war on Russia, because Russia had been an ally until the Russian Revolution happened. There's never a declaration of war, but they immediately move this blockade ring into force against the Russians. And they basically wait and hope- Against the, the Soviets, effectively. Oh, the yeah, Russians yeah. who have become the Soviets, yes. Exactly, against the Bolsheviks, yeah. So- they put that blockade ring in place and then they just sit back and wait and they hope that, you know, they support the white counter-revolutionaries as well. Um, but the combination of those things is their hope that they're going to get Russia back on their side. And that's really, I think, also where uh, you start to see this big humanitarian outcry in the West and a big debate breaks out, actually. It's kind of interesting uh, between people who say we need to re-engage with the Soviet uh, regime, the Soviet state. And people who say we need to keep up this blockade. And it doesn't actually have the kind of political alignment that you think it does because you have people like Herbert Hoover, you know, Republican, uh, self-made millionaire, who actually say, instead of trying to convince the Bolsheviks that they should just give up uh, by uh, starving them, how about we show them what capitalism has to offer? We bring them the riches of capitalist plenty. So we lift the blockade of Russia. And ultimately, that is what ends up happening. But it takes several years before people like him and Winston Churchill, uh, many of them had previously been pretty tough prosecutors of the blockade. But once they see Bolshevism in power and the fact that it's not going to die down, they kind of shift and they try this sort of mollifying them with capitalist trade. 
So maybe you could talk a little bit about the the second part of my question, which is this post-war revolutionary moment and the connection or lack thereof between the blockades. Yes. So it's interesting that the aim you see, particularly when Woodrow Wilson brings the United States into World War I, he begins to spell out a bunch of objectives for what could lift the blockade. And one of them is that he says that the German people need to overthrow the Kaiser. He just says, if unless they get rid of this militaristic clique at the top of their government, we're not going to be able to let them back into the world market on equal terms. That's just, they're not a, a trustworthy international partner. And that's really the first time in, in modern history, as far as I've been able to find, that you have a demand or an imposition of sanctions coupled with a demand for political regime change. The British and the French didn't care about the regime. They ultimately just wanted a peace treaty and the war to end. And if they could, they wanted to eliminate the German overseas kind of uh, corporate presence, like a competition. But they didn't really care about the Kaiser or about what the former government. Woodrow Wilson does. That's very interesting. And it's a bigger debate about, you know, to what degree the blockade feeds into the revolution you get in November 1918. It's interesting to note that it starts in military units. So there are soldiers and sailors who first begin to mutiny. And I think that that also shows that it has something to do with morale and has something to do with the way that the Germans launch these big aims for total war and that they can't deliver on them. But yeah, the effect of it is that this new democratic government comes to, uh, to power and, and you basically get a civil war in Germany that uh, then takes a while to, to settle down into the Weimar Republic. I just have one question um, related to what I said earlier, and that's the relationship between this form of warfare and liberalism, because I think there's been a lot of recent work on sort of humanity and liberalism and humanity and war. And one of the claims about strategic bombing was that it was actually a more humane form of warfare. And so one of the themes of your book is that the economic weapon is a paradigmatically liberal weapon. So could you maybe explain what you mean by that? First of all, what you mean by liberal, what you mean by liberalism, and how that feeds into liberal internationalism? Yeah, so... The liberal nature of this lies in the fact that the people pursuing sanctions think of themselves as pacifists, they think of themselves as anti-militarists, and they even think of themselves as people who pursue globalization, trade, who are in favor of an, of an international economy, even if they are very much in the business of isolating countries and severing them from access to the world economy they have this very optimistic, you know, kind of almost a proto-Thomas Friedman story of the riches that uh, liberal globalization can bring. So they have a, a self-conception that they're not actually in the business of using violence all the time. And they think of their own instrument as being a way to avoid violence. And it's something that will make people appeal to their materialistic nature uh, it also rests on this kind of homo economicus view of the world, of course, that countries and particularly people will just pick and put their own economic gain first, or at least their aversion to economic loss, as if people you know, do not have other things like pride in national independence or the desire for self-determination or even the desire for a particular kind of politics that they would be ready to incur some losses for to achieve those. Um, there's a very liberal idea that it's also you know, ultimately about a pecuniary gain, that that is the thing that you could use to manage the kind of wild passions of international politics. And then the final thing that's interesting, and I think that provides kind of a connection to today as well, in this period at the end of World War I, when they're continuing the blockade after the war officially has ended, 
they're dealing with the aftermath of total war where they've had millions of people in the field in uniform. They need to demobilize them and send them back home. But they do need some sort of instrument with which to put pressure on their opponents. And the costs of total war, the cost of keeping troops in the field is very high. So they're interested in how can you have foreign policy with coercive tools in an era of demobilization. And that actually makes them really reach for the sanctions weapon. And I think there's a correct connection there with today where you obviously see like, you know, widespread, I think, popular discontent after Iraq and Afghanistan with the idea of military intervention. And the US government, I think Biden too, understands that boots on the ground is quite unpopular now. And I don't think it's a coincidence that since Iraq and Afghanistan, Obama already began this recognition, right, that this was kind of a losing popular effort to try and support these wars on a mass basis. And I think he also is, as a result, one of the people who in in the last decade and a half really pivoted to using sanctions much more. Nick, one of the things that that I found striking about your uh, discussion of sanctions in the interwar period was the idea that they were really viewed as one side of a coin, the other side being economic support for countries that needed it, who you wanted to keep you know, on side. So there was the threat on the one hand, if a country kind of goes outside the boundaries of what the League of Nations has set out as appropriate behavior, you threaten with these sanctions. But on the other hand, you're also supporting smaller countries that are struggling that, uh, you know, could use the help. At some point, it, it seems to me we lost the carrot there in that combo. One half of the coin is gone. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it came to be that that we stopped talking about the positive aspect of this idea and are completely now just kind of obsessed with the negative aspect of it. Yes. So one of the really interesting things about this economic weapon discourse in the interwar period is that people see it as a kind of catch-all term that has two sides, a positive and a negative one. The negative one is sanctions, is depriving countries of resources and trying to force them to do things, either deterrence or compellence. But the positive side is probably just as interesting because that has its root also in wartime policies and particularly in the inter-allied logistics bodies. So they were organizing mass purchases of grain, sharing of ships and all sorts of financial aid to each other. Of course, massive amounts of war finance and loans also to make sure that people continue to be fed in allied countries. So there's quite a humanitarian, a kind of uh, you know, positive construction aspect to that. And that memory was there as well. And you had people like Keynes in the interwar period who obviously had been involved in war finance, you know, and then he was at the Versailles Conference and wrote The Economic Consequences of the Peace. But his real experience as an administrator was actually doing war finance and arranging loans and money so that people could pay for the war and could keep their societies kind of functioning. And as a result, when he was asked in the 20s what he wanted to do uh, in, in, the, in the debate about how to design sanctions. He said, why don't you put much more emphasis on positive assistance to the victims of aggression and actually trying to help countries in need than trying to punish the aggressor? And it's interesting because there's a really direct similarity between the debate over Keynesianism versus austerity, right? Should government in general take a role in stimulating the economy, getting us out of a recession. And Keynes' opponents were also people who were in favor of balancing the budget all the time. They were supporters of the gold standard. They wanted a very kind of austere fiscal policy. And it's only after World War II, I think, that you start to see, you know, this is one of the positive sides of, of, 
American hegemony, I think why American hegemony has become so deep-rooted around the world, that American policymakers were much more aware that you also have to provide money. However it is, lend-lease, Marshall Plan, military assistance, but you know, you have to create economic expansion. And it's interesting because I think in the last few years, again, the West has kind of lost that. Right now, in, after COVID, there's a bit more of a sense that we need to spend more money again. But on the whole, if you look at the one country that's used spending money super effectively to gain influence, it's been China and the Belt and Road Initiative, right? If there's one thing that stands out about China, I mean, I'm not a China expert, but it's really striking that the Chinese are just able and willing to give dozens of billions of dollars in infrastructure spending and with almost very few uh, political strings attached compared to Western lenders. Um, but my sense, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, that China, when doing that, often demands Chinese firms and Chinese workers, right? So that, that it actually has created some tension amongst local populations, I, I think. So that's also, I think, interesting about the Chinese developmental program is that yes and no, I would say, is my understanding of that. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I don't want to suggest it's not fraught with all sorts of problems, right? And it definitely also is an open question if it's going to benefit those countries. But what I'm trying to say is just that it has real efficacy as a way of gaining influence as a policy. People are just much more responsive to you giving them stuff than you trying to withhold stuff from them. And yeah, that <laughs> turns out, yeah, you know, what a shock. <laughs> no, exactly. And and it's w- funny that, you know, in, in domestic economic policy in the last few years, we've kind of rediscovered like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't, you know, uh, budget cut your own economy back into a recession. Finally, it seems like that penny has dropped, I think, again, uh, somewhat. But in, in foreign policy, that's with sanctions still very much the approach is uh, deprivation as a way to make people do what you want. So we, we've gotten through World War One, the post-war period. So how does this develop, let's say, between 1919, let's take that, at, you know, Versailles and 33, uh, with the ascension of Hitler and FDR to uh, power? Uh, what is the story of sanctions in the 20s and the early 1930s? And do we need to know anything about the Kellogg-Briand Pact or, you know, the famous legislations of, of the 20s, the Dawes Plan, the Young Plan, all the, the famous international acts of the 20s? How does sanctions relate to those sorts of money changing efforts and how does that, uh, sorry, money exchanging efforts and how does that relate to the League of Nations? Because I think one of your major arguments is you're promoting a revisionist history of the League of Nations is actually more important than most historians have assumed. Yes. One of the things that you start to see in the 20s is that the United States is in this weird position because Wilson had been really ambitious about the use of sanctions, right, for domestic regime change reasons, but also to kind of really spread this liberal international order. But he fails to get the Versailles Treaty passed in the Senate. And the US goes back into a more kind of wishy-washy half there because it, it does continue to lend lots of money to Europe. But it's and not there in are any officials inter- there and like there yeah. are American officials who work for the league. So yeah, it's 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 the liminal space. Yeah, exactly. So there are lots of Americans who are kind of excited, or I should say lots of uh, people in the American elite who want to join this project. But if you, I think, take the kind of pulse of the average American public in the 20s and 30s, they don't really necessarily want to get involved in these things. They still associate the League of Nations and all this sort of talk about collective security and sanctions as old-style European imperialism. It's like an old-world thing. You know, avoid getting entangled in foreign conflicts, basically. And Roosevelt initially follows that. Right, like the first, the first two terms of Roosevelt are focused on domestic reconstruction and the New Deal, and it's only 
much later in his presidency, in his third and fourth term, that he begins to really reach out and take more international action, basically. And that he also starts to associate himself with these collective security efforts. Now, Hitler is, of course, a problem, right? Because he's an aggressive fascist. (laughs) Um, And the issue, however, is that as long as he doesn't violate anything in the official territorial status quo of the Versailles Treaty, there's no legal way that sanctions can be used against him. So him killing and imprisoning in concentration camps all the opposition in Germany, that is not a reason in the interwar period to use sanctions. So there is an important difference, right? Today we would impose them over even the smallest internal governments or election results we don't like or uh, human rights violations. In the interwar period, there's none of that. It's very much about only interstate peace and territorial annexation and, and interstate war, like aggressive war. So that's really one of the problems with with trying to bring kind of sanctions down on Hitler. But it is an interesting question of what would have happened if they had really tried very hard, because certainly in the first phase of his regime, his position was also pretty brittle. And, you know, they were really, the first phases of rearmament were really done on a shoestring. And it was kind of this window of opportunity. So there are definitely some missed chances there as well. So, Nick, I know Derek has a question, but uh, so what do you think of the fascism debate? Is Donald <laughs> Trump Adolf Hitler? <laughs> so, I mean, I've, you know, I, I teach a course about fascism now, and it's been uh, understandably very popular among the students who are all very keen to know more about this, uh, this F word. I mean, I'll just say one thing, you know, because I think you've commented on this intelligently in a whole number of forums, but it seems strange to try and find the relevant examples for how politics can go in a bad direction only in a very limited period of European history and not look at the history of the Americas as settler societies, for example, uh, that have all sorts of nepotism, cronyism, oligarchy, right? Those things to me, it's I, I've always felt that the United States in some sense has a lot more to learn from countries like Brazil than it does from countries like, you know, Germany or interwar Hungary or what have you. So, I mean, I think that's, that, that's kind of my short answer that I think that there's kind of a a desire, I think, by a lot of American commentators to want to make the story about what's going on here about a specific period of European politics that is not necessarily always the most relevant comparison. Well, I would tend to agree. Sorry to interrupt, Eric, please. <laughs> uh, I think we should impose sanctions on Mar-a-Lago <laughs> right now, <laughs> frankly. Nick, can you talk a little bit about the significance of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, yes. which is a case of sort of the first challenge to the League of Nations and this structure of sanctions or the threat of sanctions, the first country that, that seems willing to say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. We don't, you know, we're going to do what we want anyway. And the effect that sanctions had on Italy and sort of, I mean, this works two ways. The way that this case kind of affected sanctions policy and the development of this tool and also the way that the sanctions that were imposed affected what happened subsequently in, in European history. For sure. The Italo-Ethiopian War is a really interesting conflict, and it's super galvanizing for this kind of mood of crisis in the 1930s. Even before you have the Spanish Civil War, I think, actually, everywhere around the world, people are following this conflict day by day, you know, the advances of the Italian troops as they try and and march on on Addis Ababa. And 
the League of Nations didn't sit still. It did actually, because the military buildup that Mussolini was doing in the months before it was so obvious, they actually got this pretty thought-through sanctions package ready. But there was a debate, and it's kind of interesting, particularly as this discussion about Russia and Ukraine is happening right now. There was a debate about how to calibrate the sanctions and what kind of sanctions would be most likely to make Mussolini stop the invasion, but also while keeping him inside the kind of camp of people in the international order that would not cause further problems. Because the thing that people forget is that in the mid-1930s, the liberal powers wanted to have an alliance with Mussolini against Hitler. They bent over backwards to try and keep him in this anti-Nazi camp. And that was the reason why they basically for a while were tempted by to abandon a little bit of Ethiopia, giving him a little bit of Africa basically to keep him happy, and if that would keep him on the side of the liberal powers, then that maybe was a price worth paying because, of course, you know, British and American and French elites, particularly French and British elites, they were imperialists. They had massive empires to them. Trading colonies was as, as, as normal as anything. So that was a temptation. But ultimately, they couldn't do that because Ethiopia was a member state of the League. So Mussolini invades and they impose sanctions that were kind of more gradual in nature. So they don't try and do a full blockade. And the idea is simply... They're going to kind of bleed Mussolini white and run down the foreign exchange reserves of his economy, of the Italian central bank, so that at some point he has to choose between keeping this army in the field in Ethiopia, which is absolutely massive. So this is a 500,000 person army. It's the largest army a European country's ever sent to the African continent. It costs a lot of money. Really? For, That's interesting. Yes. Oh, I had no idea. That's very, very interesting. The largest. Why was it such a massive force? Do you know? Uh, just very briefly. That's I didn't know that fact. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons is that it seems like the reason he launched the invasion to begin with was not just because he wanted a bigger empire, because he actually wanted to employ lots of unemployed Italians who were thrown out of work by the Great Depression. So, uh, almost one. Yeah, almost one third of the million are people building roads. They're not soldiers. <laughs> so they're just there to be sort of on a colonial work excursion. So it's like a basically. developmentalist part. There's a developmentalist part of this in, in a sense because yeah. Ethiopia wants to get into that sort of colonial game in a real way. Yeah, exactly. But basically that provides them kind of with this window to try and, uh, you know, stifle Mussolini with sanctions because Italy is not one of the richest countries at that point. So it has to pay pretty significantly to keep this big army in the field. It also has to move all of its troops through the Suez Canal, which is not controlled by government. It's a, an Anglo-French company. It's private shareholders. If a bunch of the shareholders ordered by the British government close it, you know, there's nothing that he can do. But they basically try and avoid antagonizing him because they're worried that he's going to go to war with them. And instead, they decide on this package of sanctions to sort of like drain his financial reserves. And at some point, they say he has to choose between his popularity at home or pursuing this war. And the only thing that really goes wrong, and there again, what Derek was just asking about, you know, this positive support thing, they basically don't provide any help to the Ethiopians. And this is, I think, really the damning indictment. The Ethiopians are really begging them for some kind of assistance for weapons, but also financial support. And Western countries provide them with absolutely nothing. And so the Ethiopian resistance lacks the kind of backbone that it could have had if actually there was material support for them. And as a result, Mussolini basically wins this gambit. He manages to conquer Ethiopia before the sanctions have an effect, but it was pretty close. And if he would have had to stay in the field for another 
six months or so, then there's probably no way that he would have really been able to have a victory on that scale. So that's kind of the short story. What's the rationale for not providing aid to Ethiopia? Is it just racism, or you know, are there are there um, you know more uh, there are other you know more sophisticated arguments that are that are made for not doing that it? That will ultimately boil down to we'll racism. Boil, right, but, boil yeah. down to racism. Yes, <laughs> but uh, you know, were they trying to at least provide some justification? I guess. Yeah, I think that's it. They have limited experience in general with giving financial aid of a modern kind. And if they do, they want to give it to Europeans who they kind of trust to handle the money. The other thing I think is just that in general, this was a period in, you know, the aftermath of the Great Depression where all countries were still very penny-pinching and austere. So balancing budgets was still very much the order of the day. And the idea of, you know, spending money on what they maybe considered a sort of lost cause already to them, yeah, it wasn't an attractive proposition. So there's a bunch of things coming together. So that brings us to the late 30s. Okay, first of all, we're going to take a Eurocentric view of World War II here um, because we are talking about Europe. Um, there are, are lots of interesting arguments about when one should date the beginning of World War II, too. But I'm just going to use the you know sort of Anglo-American-centric uh, perspective of it starting with the German invasion of Poland in September 1939. So just wanted to get that out of the way. So with that as our sort of framework, Nick, do sanctions, fear of sanctions lust for sanctions play any role in the outbreak of the war or not really? Yes. What you see after the Italo-Ethiopian War is very interesting because they do impose sanctions, but the sanctions are not strong enough to break Mussolini's war effort. And after that, however, there is a, a pretty serious fear in other revisionist countries, particularly in Nazi Germany and in Japan, which also has a whole bunch of gripes with the uh, liberal international order, also to do with racism, but also to do with the fact that they have been in a pretty disadvantageous position for a long time. And they have already been trying to build an empire in China. And they feel basically that their status as a great power in Asia is not being respected. Uh, they're very brutal in their own way, right? So this is not at all to excuse the Japanese and, and their depredations, but they definitely are also subject to unequal treatment by the West. Anyway, Nazi Germany and Japan both react um, in interesting ways to Italy's experience. They start to see actually league sanctions as a pretty serious threat as they had been before because they particularly Germany, had this memory of the blockade, right? Nazi propaganda makes a lot of hay out of this. But it's very clear that... Oh, just very quickly, Nick, Just yeah. uh, it, it also becomes very important for other Germans. Like the guy I wrote my book about, Hans Speyer, he's constantly talking about food shortages in 1919 and sort of like the threat of de-civilization. You know, so I think there's this, there's this fear amongst many people who come to the United States and who become Cold War liberals as well about sort of the threat of de-civilizing processes that they experience from 1918, 1919. So I just wanted to emphasize that this is kind of a, my understanding is this is a cross-political phenomenon in a very interesting way. But sorry, just to return to the Nazis, I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're totally right, Danny. So um, the, the Nazi vocabulary that starts to emerge around this period is very interesting. They coined this new term, blockade festigkeit, which means blockade resilience. Oh, beautiful and, accent. I wish I could pronounce yeah. German like that. Oh, man. <laughs> and it becomes like the buzzword of the four-year plan the goal of which is to make Germany self-sufficient. Yeah, what's the yeah. four-year plan to make an autarkic Germany effectively? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, this these facts have already been out there, but I think for a long time, 
when historians looked at this, they were just looking at this at these terms. They're like, oh yeah, that's just Nazi paranoia. None of that's going to happen. But what people I think haven't really emphasized enough is that this four-year plan is formulated while the League is imposing sanctions on Ethiopia. And in the book, I show a whole bunch of concern in the German elite that shows that they were very worried that they were going to be next. They're like, this is going to be trial mobilization for an economic blockade against us. We're going to be next. And they very much accelerated the process of trying to become autarkic in fuel and all these raw materials. Yeah. So, Nick, here's a question, because we often hear about Lebensraum, and one of Hitler's major strategic justifications, this is a common theme in German history, is you needed to get that sort of eastern territory, the plains of Europe, in order to be able to produce for yourself. So how does this sort of fear of sanctions play in with that long-standing German geostrategic position about needing Lebensraum? So there's a very interesting connection between World War I and World War II, because in World War I already, the Kaiser is telling his generals, we need to get Ukraine because Ukraine has all the grain. And this becomes an object of fixation for Hitler as well. So this is one of the final things he famously says before he invades Poland, is that we must obtain Ukraine so they cannot starve us out again like in the last war. And there is a, a very strong fixation on the East, which is thought to be right this, this realm, Western Eurasia, of limitless resources. Uh, in the Caucasus, you have oil, you have all sorts of rare earth metals and, and alloys like manganese that are uh, very important for steel production that you can only get there on the Western Eurasian landmass. So they become very fixated on that. And uh, the Germans in particular begin to either find countries that they can kind of bring into their zone of influence that have those resources, or they directly even expand or kind of intimidate them into surrendering stuff. So, you know, they also get lots of resources from the Anschluss of Austria, from Czechoslovakia, from uh, these sort of takeovers, and each of them make them a little bit more resilient, but ultimately their aim is very much to get these resources from the East and, and Southeastern Europe. We didn't really talk about Japan yet. So could yeah. you maybe talk a little bit about Japan? Because so the, the famous, the sort of common story is that Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, but there had been economic strangulation going on for months beforehand. So you could maybe contextualize that for people who might not know and how that plays into the larger story of economic sanctions. Yes. Japan has been active militarily in China uh, throughout the 30s. For 1931, they first launched this invasion of Manchuria, but after that, it seems to stabilize for a while. And actually, the real process that sets the kind of back and forth between Japanese aggression and sanctions in motion is the outbreak of a new, really big war now between the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek and the Japanese in 1937. And what happens is that Japan basically first tries to send a small military force to fight the war in China. It doesn't work. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists retreat into the interior. The Japanese get bogged down. And as they get bogged down, they, again, very much like Mussolini, have to spend lots and lots of money on their army. And the really strange thing is that the more they actually militarize their economy, the more they start to produce weapons for this expedition in China, the more dependent they become on resources controlled by the British Empire, the United States, and the Dutch East Indies. So the countries, the liberal countries that are most likely to disapprove of what Japan's doing, Japan is now more dependent on them than before because it has to feed this military machine. And that gives the United States, Britain, and the Dutch colonies tremendous leverage. And at some point in the summer uh, of, of 1941, they decide to do a joint embargo together. So Britain, uh, the Dutch East Indies, so what's today Indonesia, 
and the U.S. all imposed this oil embargo. And before then, they've already put sanctions on scrap metal, on aviation fuel, on a whole bunch of other uh, technologies. But the oil one is really significant. And then basically Japan sees itself confronted with a very imminent lack of fuel. And that really sets the clock ticking because at that point you could just read it. So Nick, this is a controversial question. Do you think FDR was doing that in order to get the U.S. into World War II? (laughs) Because it seems from our perspective... You deny Japan oil, This is that's what's going to happen. They're going to have to get oil. That's the lifeblood of their imperial expansion. And this yeah. has been one of the biggest questions of historiography since the event itself. And as someone who's really de- uh, delved into those archives, what do you think about that? So in my research, I actually became convinced that there's an episode one year before the Japan oil sanctions that's really crucial to why the U.S. imposes the oil embargo on Japan in July 1941. And it actually has to do with Spain. So the Spanish Civil War ends in 1939. Franco, with the help of the fascists, with the help of Hitler Mussolini, wins. And he remains neutral and he needs to, you know, rebuild the society that's been ravaged by the Civil War. But he's kind of tempted to join the fascists once they go to war in in Europe. And in the summer of 1940, right, Hitler's armies have just conquered Paris. They're all over Western Europe now. And there's this moment where very clearly you can see Franco doubting, kind of being tempted with the idea of joining with Hitler and Mussolini. And what he can do then is expand and help the Axis to expand into Northern Africa, give them access to Morocco, to West Africa, and complete this Mediterranean ring to make the Mediterranean basically a kind of interior fascist ocean. Right. And then which provides space for going into Azerbaijan uh, to really get get the the, the oil reserves in Baku that Hitler was really uh, uh, focused on. Yeah. So Franco is in this kind of key position, right? The, and also, of course, this would involve an invasion of Gibraltar, the British colony. It would destroy one of the pillars of British naval power in the Mediterranean. Oh, good use of pillars to talk about Gibraltar. That was very clever. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know that's the foundation of the US dollar, right? The the uh, Go the on, pillar. tell us. Okay, so uh, this is a... Tangent. Big... Jake, we should have some some noise for tangent. Let's come up with some audio. <laughs> yeah, segue, a little segue audio. Nice. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, so... Nick, tell me, what do you mean? Well, this comes from the coat of arms of the Habsburg monarchy. They claimed that they were descended from Hercules, and Hercules famously... Are you disagreeing with that? This is a pro-Habsburg podcast. Oh, yeah. I I mean, we're not going to get into, like, (laughs) you know, bad-mouthing the Habsburgs. Yeah, just be be careful. (laughs) I will cut your mic, actually. (laughs) Well, as a Dutch person, I'm nationally obliged to hate them, you know? (laughs) Okay, so we'll we'll allow it to pass <laughs> just this time, but never okay. never again in the future. Okay, so the coat of arms, please continue. So they, Charles V, for example, in, in the 16th century has the two pillars of Hercules uh, on either side of the Gibraltar Straits on his coat of arms, and it has a garland with his motto, plus ultra, beyond on it. And that becomes the Spanish dollar used in the Americas, and that's the dollar sign. It's a, a bar with a garland twirled around it like an S. Oh, I had no idea. So those are the pillars huh. of Gibraltar, the two. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Thank you. All right, it, back, into the, back into the main story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so back to Franco. So Franco's in this key position. He can join the Axis, and it would potentially like you know, even further consolidate the fascist gains in the summer of 1940. And the British at that point realize that they are, you know, they're preparing for the Battle of Britain, being bombed by the Germans. They're quite worried about what's going on. They do have this new Ministry of Economic Warfare that's been set up. And they put a request in with Roosevelt. And they ask Roosevelt, you know, we know that you and the Spanish Civil War continue to give Franco 
uh, fuel and, and weapons and export stuff to Spain, could you actually just temporarily stop oil shipments to Spain just to show that you have this power? And they do that. So they, the funny thing is, this is literally six tankers full of oil from the Gulf of Mexico that leave from Texas. And they just stop them in, you know, what is it, Galveston or one of those Gulf of Mexico Texan oil ports. The American government just stops these tankers from leaving. Franco's Spain basically goes without oil for a month and a half. Everything grinds down to a halt. They're incredibly panicked about the prospect of, you know, just like having their entire society collapse, basically. And then Franco makes it very clear that he's not going to join the Axis. He he realizes Hitler can't give him those resources and, the, you know, he needs to focus on reconstructing a society. The Spanish have called this La Tentación, so the temptation, and he avoided it. But it was basically with this really short sort of snap display of American power over oil. And it's worth also to recall that the U.S. is the largest oil exporter in the world in 1940. Yeah, it's U.S. and Russia, right? They're, they basically comprise the world market, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah. But yeah. this is before the founda- founding of a lot of the big oil reserves in the yeah. Middle East. So the, there had been a few, I think, in the 30s, but not the big ones yet, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically, this episode is like a dramatically effective for the U.S. This is the first time they use sanctions because they never declare war in Spain, right? They just stop six tanker ships. <laughs> That's all it takes. And to American policymakers, though, they see this as proof of concept that you could actually prevent a potential fascist militarist from going to war if you cut off his oil. And I think it's that experience that gives them the confidence a year later that they can do the same with Japan, but it backfires massively. So your take on it, just to be clear, is that FDR's cutting off of the oil is not to get the United States in the war, but to prevent the war in the first place, perhaps because he wanted to focus on Europe. He wasn't always kind of a Europe first guy anyway. Um, So that's the argument you're making, Nick, just to be clear. Yeah, I I think it's less a case of American provocation and more a case of American hubris. Yeah, American miscalculation, which will never happen again. So I'm glad that was the last time that happened. (laughs) Uh, So what, what is the story of sanctions in World War II? Is there a story to tell? And how does that particularly relate to strategic bombing? Because strategic bombing really takes off in World War II. And the big claim for strategic bombing was that this would end wars quickly because you destroy the uh, communication networks, the transportation networks, the logistics of an enemy country while also sapping the enemy civilians' will to fight. So this is the the first time that uh, air war becomes a gigantic thing in World War II. And your book uh, provides really interesting statistics comparing the damage done by sanctions in air war during World War I and how it was really sanctions that did it mostly or blockade. Uh, so, so what happens in World War II and how do sanctions relate to these other forms of civilian-focused warfare, total war? Yeah. So strategic air power is a big new thing, right, in World War II. And it is used in coordination with economic blockade. And the British, they put it in this way where they say, we make the enemy economy and the enemy society more brittle by starving it of resources through a blockade. And then we hit it with the hammer of strategic air power. And that combination, they hope, is going to make the enemy's society crack in some way. Now, interestingly, it actually doesn't. There's, they they yeah. claim it does after Japan, which is really interesting. They claim that the atomic bomb is an instance of strategic bombing, which is wild to me. But yeah, that that's related to the Air Force's desire to become independent. But sorry, yes, in Europe, it certainly doesn't. The 8th Air Force certainly yeah. doesn't end the war. Yeah, I mean, so that's the basic story is that they try and use these two things at the same time and, and, and together in unison. But I think still shows that, you know, the learning experience, other countries don't sit still and just sort of you know, easily acquiesce in this stuff. They've learned stuff in the meantime as well. 
uh, particularly in Germany, right? They've fashioned their whole trading system. And also, of course, they've become much more ruthless. The sort of genocidal orientation of fascism is justified explicitly through the prism of blockade security. If you know the hunger plan in 1941, the kind of big plan that the Wehrmacht goes into the Soviet Union with as a way of dealing with what they see as the surplus of Slavic and, and Jewish population in the Western Soviet Union, this is the kind of big totally thought out plan for mass murder that they have, it explicitly says we cannot allow these 25 million people in the cities of the Western Soviet Union to survive. They undermine the blockade resilience of Germany and of Europe. Right. Because they, they yeah. will take calories away. Yes. Basically is the goal. Yeah. Or is the idea rather. I think the, 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 you know, the specter of blockade, it totally ends up going across the interwar period into the darkest corners of World War II. One question, Nick. Do you think that they really think that, or is that just an excuse to commit genocide, or both, which is probably the answer, is that they are worried about blockade resilience and they also want to murder all the Jews? Yes, I think that they absolutely, they're connected. They have an ideological racial hierarchy in, in mind, but they are also in a continent where it is clear that there are resource shortages, um, and particularly in the, the way that the Holocaust in Poland in 1942 takes place. You know, this is not a new argument like Adam Tooze, for example, in The Wages of Destruction makes this argument too, that there is a direct link between food security and particular drivers of the Holocaust too, but it's filtered through the prism of racial ideology. So, as, you know, when we get into the post-war period and the changes that the United States makes to, well, the sort of spearheads, I guess, let's say, to the global financial system, chiefly the Bretton Woods process, what does that do in terms of affecting sanctions uh, and their uses as policy. The US dollar is, of course, today kind of the big thing that sanctions are essentially tied to in many cases. But it's kind of interesting that in the early period of Bretton Woods, there isn't that much weaponization of the dollar yet. And part of it also has to do with the fact that under Bretton Woods, you have lots of capital controls. So they're kind of only slowly allowing countries to restart trade again. There's much more space for, you know, domestic welfare. There's much more space for domestic intervention. And it takes a while to build back to that early 20th century level of globalization. So the Bretton Woods world is a lot more kind of consisting of these national units. And that's part of the reason why initially there's not that much use of it. But then the Cold War happens. And I guess, you know, here Danny is really the expert, but it's interesting to see that the U.S. turns again to this weapon, not against European countries, not against uh, aggressor states, but to contain communism, which is kind of a throwback to the post-World War I moment when they were already using it against Hungary and Soviet Russia. So let's just end talking a little bit about sanctions today, because you, you're one of the many historians who is speaking to today's um, issue. So where would you say sanctions are today in, in the American imagination, in the liberal imagination? And are they effective or are they uh, not? Are they, you know, just effective at destroying people's lives? And you could define effective however you want, from a humanist perspective where it's a big loss or from, you know, American quote-unquote interests, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. So this is such a fraught debate because I think that, you know, people are kind of looking for the one phrase that sums everything up but uh and that is subscribe to american prestige that's right <laughs> <laughs> but um the effectiveness debate has basically been raging ever since the blockade in world war one and there are definitely a bunch of cases that you can point to 
where sanctions work. But I think the most successful ones were the pure threats, the ones where they never had to be imposed. The one like the six tanker ships uh, being withheld from Franco, that was an incredibly effective one. Almost no one, interestingly today, knows about this case. But those sorts of cases are very vital. The other one, you know, that Eisenhower famously uses is in the Suez Crisis in 56, where he just says to Britain and to France, who've gone into Egypt to try and take back the Suez Canal, I'm not going to support the pound and the franc anymore. And you can <laughs> well, do without Nothing yeah. they could do about that. And that's basically the nuclear option. Exactly. And, you know, so, and it, it's terribly effective at just restraining your little neo-imperialist European minions, you know? So there are some cases, but on the whole, no. Sanctions are predominantly a story of failure. As a way to change behavior, they only work in a very small amount of cases and usually, of course, with really tremendous costs. And it's really striking, I think, it, particularly in the last few decades, that in the debate about sanctions, we've kind of shifted the goalposts because you now see people, advocates of sanctions pointing towards the economic damage that they do. But that ultimately, obviously, can't be the goal of foreign policy to just... Yeah, it has to be compellence. Yeah, to right. hurt exactly. people. Yeah. It has to b- d- d- deliver some sort of political goal, some sort of behavioral change. And if you can't get there, then there, the efficacy is, is, is zero or even negative or counterproductive when the use of sanctions leads to relations deteriorating and moving closer to war. So I'm on the whole, I think, you know, there's a really big reassessment overdue. And I think part of this history and the point of writing this history also is to try and show how fraught and difficult the use of sanctions really is and how it also really depends on the timing and like the moment in, in, in ideological history, the, the timing needs to be right. In economic history, the timing needs to be right. You know, there are just moments in the world economy when the circumstances are, are good and they can enhance the effect, but they can also really weaken it. And the aftermath of the Great Depression in the 30s was an absolutely very difficult time for them. To so work. let's end on this question. Why do you think there's continued interest in sanctions in, let's call it, the liberal imagination or amongst liberal internationalists? What does this say about modern liberal internationalism? And we could end there. And and in particular, I mean, in the liberal mindset, in the liberal imagination of how you conduct foreign policy, how did we come from sanctions are a devastating tool of war, they're a weapon, to sanctions are somehow an alternative to war and preferable to war because you know, we don't see, I guess, explosions happening on the TV. How did we get to that point where you can sort of justify what is basically a sadistic policy of sanctions for sanctions' sake uh, by saying, well, it's at least it's not war, when, you know, 80 years ago, people knew very well that it was an act of war. Yeah, I mean, it has something to do with just domestically how liberalism today functions in the realm of foreign policy. There's pressure to do something, and this is a way that you can a- act tough while you know being seen to take some action without incurring always particularly if you just put sanctions on for example leaders of a government those never really change behavior but they are a powerful way of signaling you know disapproval this is who we are so i think actually a lot of sanctions is about projecting uh, the, the sanctioning country's own values it's about showing what you find important and it, it says almost more about the sending state sometimes than about the actual behavior or transgressions of the target. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is just that the U.S. 
is in this, you know, as a result of financialization and 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 the the, the kind of shifts of neoliberalism and the role of the dollar in this unique position where it has a power uh, to use the dollar and use its jurisdiction over global banks in such a way that uh, it can, you know, really bring down the hammer on small countries and on big ones too. But it doesn't actually suffer a direct trade backlash because the U.S. economy actually isn't all that exposed to imports and exports. It's only about 25, 26% of GDP. You know, the Netherlands, where I'm from, it's 152% of our GDP is trade. So <laughs> it's it's very, there's a total asymmetry between how international the currency is and how small the kind of commercial presence of the United States in the world is. So the United States as a, as a country experiences very little direct commercial uh, repercussion from the use of sanctions. And I think if you put those two things together, like the politics and the economics of it makes sense, that's already a large part of the story. Nick Mulder, thank you so much for joining us. Assistant professor at Cornell, author of The Economic Weapon. Uh, Everyone, please pick it up and we'll definitely have you on in the future, Nick. Great seeing you as always and talk soon. That would be great. And thanks so much, Danny and Derek. It was a very fun conversation. (laughs) 